I'm from Long Island, New York. Let's welcome a very serious rap combination. It's her latest single on the Def Jam label entitled Rebel Without a Pause. How about a gang for Public Enemy? Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast where sports and politics collide. I'm Dave Zirin. We got a hell of a show for you this week. We are going to speak to the one, the only Chuck D from Public Enemy. It is Chuck D like you have never heard him before. Did you know that Chuck D always wanted to be a sportscaster? Well, he did. But frankly, it shouldn't surprise us if you remember this line on Charles Barkley, the round mound of rebound himself on Rebel Without a Pause. Attitude when I'm on fire. Shoes on a loose electric wire. Simple and The one, the only, the legend, Chuck D. I came to Public Enemy first as a big sports fan. I don't remember anybody before you integrating sports in that way. Of course, you had basketball by Curtis Blow, but not like like integrating it into political raps, like using Barkley as metaphor. Um, do you see Public Enemy as the first people to do that? Well, I wanted to be a sportscaster, and I, well, I was obsessed with being that guy that was either going to be uh, a Marv Albert or, or, or Bryant Gumbel before today or somebody, somebody, you know. It wasn't unnatural to me at all. So to actually make a, a, a sports reference, keep it hip-hop, make it sound fly, and then make it political, I mean, that comes from, you know, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, uh, the 68 boycott uh, of the Olympics, Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell saying, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to still live here in Boston. I ain't going to like it. You know, um, Jackie Robinson, who further, as we get far away from 1946, and the reason I say 1946, because Jackie Robinson breaking through in another country in Montreal and experiencing the hatred from Southern players in the minor leagues was, was as groundbreaking as 47. You know, so I, I became obsessed with so much sports, and then later on, post 19 and 18 years old, I became as obsessed towards music and musicology and black music. And then I put put it together like a Reese's peanut butter cup. We're going to give you a lot more of Chuck D later on, and I just want to introduce my producer, Dangerous Dan Bloom. How you doing, Dan? Doing great, DZ. Oh, man, great to see you. And joined by Christian Dotson Pearson. Yes, yes, yes. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing well. How are you, Dave? I'm doing wonderfully. Great to have you here. Thank you, thank you. You're in the academy. You're in yes. the graduate program at Howard. What are you studying there? So I am studying communication, culture, and media studies at the PhD level. I'm in my third year. So I am looking at concussions, but I'm uh, looking at media your dissertation? advocacy. Yes. Talk I, to it's, me. It's deep, but I want to look at media advocacy of concussion awareness because NFL, hockey, you know, soccer, they're all contact sports, rugby. And there was a study scene ended last year where I think out of that whole season, they said about – it was about 41% of players in the league suffered a concussion. Mm. And so you figure there's 32 teams, a 53-man roster, so about 1,700 men playing professionally, and 41% suffered concussions. That is a lot. Yes. And so it's important, I think, not just at the professional level, not just in football, but across all contact sports to figure out 
how are parents and players and coaches being made aware of concussions, the dangers, the symptoms, and what are they doing to help combat that? Wow, it's fascinating, and it relates actually to something we're going to do later this show because I raise a question in my latest column over at The Nation about why is anybody even playing football Mm -hmm. and using as the starting point this really interesting exchange between LeBron James and a reporter where a reporter asked LeBron James, hey, you played football growing up. Why don't your kids play football? And he said, because I was poor and they're not. And so I don't think poverty is the only reason why people play football, but I do think the reasons why people play need to be examined under a very harsh light when we consider the risks that go along with putting on the pads and the helmet. Oh, yeah. There's a lot. I haven't done too much research just yet, but there's a lot that goes on that will determine why people play. And then the violent behavior that comes from playing a sport like football, like hockey, like soccer, and how it translates off the field. So quite interesting. And we're definitely going to talk about this on another show, but I think the big gaping donut hole in Mm -hmm. the discussion about all the things that plague the NFL right now is the connective tissue between head violence and violence against women, domestic Mm -hmm. violence, Mm -hmm. etc. They never talk about them as connected issues when when you talk to actual neurologists, when you talk to people who actually study the human brain and the frontal lobe of the brain, which is what gets hit over and over again and how that controls impulse Mm -hmm. and temper, that there's a lot of connective tissue at work. Now, granted, there are a lot of people out there who abuse their partner and they don't have head injuries. I'm not saying that that's why this abuse takes place. We have a system that can be extremely misogynistic and feeds uh, the issue of violence against women. But I've also, I cannot deny that I've interviewed too many women Mm -hmm. who are or were the partners of NFL players. And when they tell the story of their abuse, they speak about it as if the person who was abusing them was just a different person than the person that they married. Like their face looks different, the look that's in their eyes, there's a glassy-eyed look. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these women are trying to pursue some sort of justice uh, for the fact that without any sort of knowledge, uh, their families entered into this world and had horrific results on the other side. We will talk about that. Very interesting to see. There's mm-hmm. so many layers. To, to, it's, it's like an onion because we're going to look at it and look at it, and by the end, we're going to be crying. Yeah, that's right. This cut goes out to all y'all that's been missing us for mad years. One love, yo. Yeah, that's right. He's got game. If man is the father, the son is the center of the earth In the middle of the universe, then why is this verse coming six times rehearsed? Don't freestyle much, but I write them like such Word. Amongst the fiends controlled by the screens What does it all mean, all this shit I'm seeing? Human <laughs> beings screaming vocal javelins Sign of a local unraveling uh-huh. And now back to our conversation with the one, the only, the hard rhymer, Chuck D. Public enemy, you know what it meant. I just remember being uh, a preteen and just hearing, I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it. It said they were suckers. And I was like, wait, you can say that? Mm. It it changed my whole vocabulary about how to think about the world, man. So first of all, thank you for that. I had some of the advantages of being able to grow up in my first 10 years of my life in the 60s where artists were bold and, 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 and actually... Artists and athletes, you know, they challenged the system mm-hmm. in, in a very tenuous time. You know, you had assassinations. You had, uns- you know, unsure people were unsure why they were going to Southeast Asia to to fight somebody they didn't know. 
and the man that really broke it all out in a Paul Robeson type way is Muhammad Ali. Mm. And and when Ali spoke, and especially after you know his victory over Liston, it was like it was that 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 access point, you know, where half the people that saw it was like said this this Negro here, and the other half was like yeah, you know. So I kind of grew up with that as an as a you know a, a infant toddler first grader, mm-hmm. <laughs> fourth grader, you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. by the 70s, you couldn't get it out of me and others. And then when we, when we were able to to talk to each other, it was like, oh, wow, affected you like that too? And thus is the seeds of, of, of the beginnings of Public Enemy, myself, uh, Hank Shockley, Bill Stephanie, you know, when I went to college. So you found out that they were affected the same way you were, and that's what planted that, the seeds into another musical revolution which was rap music and hip-hop you know i'll tell you when i speak to my own kids and their friends about hip-hop the hardest thing to get them to understand about it in the 1980s is that it wasn't like you liked hip-hop or didn't like hip-hop it was more like you were either for it or against it yeah it wasn't never a popular i mean look for example if you talk about the average person that they probably know about is a jay-z or kanye west or or um, you know, fast forwarded to to Drake. I mean, these guys are like pop stars played on radio every three minutes. I mean, mm-hmm. if to put a rap record on radio was was to get all kinds of opposition from every single angle: the hood, the community, the establishment, the left, the right, and the center. So, when I was growing up, I mean, this was like the '80s, New York City. The idea of projecting strength was oftentimes left to right-wing politicians, and that's what strength was. And if you were against what Reagan was saying, it meant weakness. And then I heard Public Enemy, and I was like, whoa, that's strength from a different angle. And I didn't really have athletes who projected that strength in the late 80s, but you did in the 60s and 70s. Were the athletes kind of like the political hip-hop stars of your youth? Yeah, because uh, they're the only ones that got got a chance to get on TV and get a microphone and also be heard, you know. I mean, singers kind of like got to interview on American Bandstand sometimes, or uh, Soul Train was helpful to mm. get whoever you followed in music to actually say something. Don Cornelius was groundbreaking in that. He said, you know, I know that these artists, if even when they bounce on TV, they do their thing and they never get the couch. Well, at least Don Cornelius gave the interview and you heard from these artists for the first time. So that was groundbreaking to hear. That was frightening. <laughs> okay. Um, you are? Um, Chuck D. Hey, Chuck. Flavor Flav. Call Medina. This is Professor Griff. Professor Griff. These are my S1Ws. This is our DJ Terminator X. Terminator, Terminator, Terminator. I uh, understand you folks from Long Island, New York, or is it Rochester? From Roosevelt, Long Island. Roosevelt, Long Island, same place. Eddie Murphy's from Dr. J, and uh, we like to call it our spot too. You know, really all of Long Island, New York. That's right, cause we're gonna put Long Island on the map now, boy. Strong Island. <laughs> Don't think I'm joking. Look like I'm joking. I'm not joking. <laughs> I got I got myself I got myself into this one, didn't I kid? 
you know, I'm, I'm working on this political biography of Jim Brown. Does it surprise you at all that if I told you that uh, Tom Cornelius and Jim Brown like ran together in a big way? Oh, no, it didn't surprise me at all because they were stand-up, they were stand-up people, you know, uh, very alpha male. But uh, being a black alpha male means that you, you better be able to fight, too. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and they were Southern California. And, and you know, uh, Don Cornelius had Jim Brown on the show right. a few times. So, I mean, Don Cornelius is probably the single most revolutionary individual for black music of the last century ever. Whoa. I speak personally because, I mean, it wasn't for Don Cornelius. I mean, we get... We go into a trajectory different orbit by being on Soul Train in 1987 when we perform uh, Rebel Without a Pause. So. Yeah, yeah. so 1980, what did you perform? Was it Rebel Without Rebel a Pause? Out, Rebel Without a Pause was our first groundbreaking street record. So, uh, you know, the thing about it, we released it in May. We, we was traveling on the Def Jam tour with LL Cool J all summer long. You know, records traveled region to region back then, but because before the Telecommunications Act, which was which was been a cancer to all music, in 1996, and Michael Powell had you know helmed that one with uh, Bill Clinton. Um, you know, music was regional. You know, you can negotiate with a regional radio station or mm-hmm. whatever. So music traveled um, from region to region, kind of like slow. From if it came out of the east, then it traveled across the country over several weeks and months' time, and vice versa if it came from the West or the center or whatever. So you had to negotiate with each region. So, you know, our record was picking up. It was a Northeast record spreading through the East. But, you know, once December came when we were aired on Soul Train, then it became a national record, like, poof, overnight, because it was on Soul Train. It was seen on TV. How did um, Public Enemy form? I'm scared to ask that question. No. <laughs> Well, what formed um, me and my partner Flavor here, we used to do radio shows with Terminator X out in Long Island, New York. And we used to do them so well, guys like um, our producer Rick Rubin, Russell Simmons, Rush, and Run DMC, LL. You know, they used to listen to the radio shows and say, hey, just put your ideas on records. First we said no, then we said yes. So that's where we are today, you know. And now here we are on Soul Train. <laughs> How about it for Public Enemy? We're about to come back with Chuck D. He's about to go on tour with The Prodigy. He's 55 years old, about to do an arena tour. So we asked Chuck about his workout regimen. Well, my, my Pilates teacher, where I live out in um, Central Cal, is a uh, lady by the name of Kathy Lopez that um she teaches a different technique and I, I believe that Pilates is uh Pilates is the the rapper's ultimate workout because it works on power within strength. It's not yoga, although we do yoga exercises and stuff like that, but it really kinda works on uh it's a inner cardio stretch and as an M C you gotta have a you gotta have a core. Now I'm not speaking of some some MCs that go around it, you know they sitting on a seat and like that. I mean, this is like, this is, I do really rough physical, and I'm 55, I'm double nickel now, mm-hmm. so. 
Right. I mean, because you got to sometimes take a verse and you you can't breathe. So right. you got to keep like you got to kind of have outlet, outlet, outlet. So when's your when's your inhale? So and then if you got move and stuff like that, it's really quite you know it's an athletic thing. So it's not just moving. You got to you got to kind of run your mouth. So yeah, it's can, Pilates, man. Can I Pilates this? is the perfect thing. You know, it's the P and then. The, and the the E at the end is the P E. <laughs> so Kathy was thinking about you know even I said you know Kathy you could probably actually put out a we could probably put out a book or something together because this is this is key and and really as a lot of guys get into their forties and fifties you know we're, you're seeing casualties you know we just lost uh, Sean Price and mm-hmm. you know Heavy D's no longer here and yeah, it's crazy so now. You know, you got guys in their forties and fifties that are gonna—they're suffering different ailments. Let me tell you something. If nothing—if nothing else—if this interview results in me starting Pilates and it changing my life, it officially becomes indelible and unforgettable. Yo, I mean, yo, let me tell you, man. It's like, um, it ain't me that came up with it. I mean, so, you know, people also would, you know, advise yoga. Me, I'm not a. I'm, I get enough cardio in different areas, but it's cardio like when I if I do a hardcore tour. But you know the thing about jumping from from being sedentary into hardcore is not the best thing. So Pilates has been that bridge, and then it's really it's you and you. And so it's not one of those things where you got to do it every day. You know, you know, you killing yourself and you busting your body up on this treadmill crap. No, this is it's it's. It's you know I do one hour, twice a week. Hmm. It's crazy, right? And it does it for you. <laughs> Yo, man, you know after six or seven months, you know you start saying, "Wow, okay, this is this is good." Yeah, and you know, and and, and you're never ever the expert either. Don't tell your instructor, "Yeah, I got this now." <laughs> no, don't don't make that mistake. I definitely ain't making a mistake. I don't say nothing during my workouts. Nothing. <laughs> Because the minute you say something, oh, yeah, you, is you good now? Oh, you think, okay, here we go. I'm like, nah, I don't want it. And it's all simple. <laughs> it's crazy shit. Like, I don't like doing squats, man, but, hey, I got to do the fucking squats. All right, yeah, and then you're all better for it. So there's things that you don't like, but it's just, all, it's just you and you. It's your body and yourself, so. Mm. Can, yeah. can we um, play this part on the podcast so people... Without the curses? Oh, no, 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 just, just you know, <laughs> trying to inspire some folks to do some Pilates. Yeah, I'm telling I'm you. I'm being serious. Like, it's, it's the, I don't know about anything else, but it's the rapper's workout. I love it. Pilates, the, the rapper's, rapper's workout. workout. Oh, no no question. You know, Kathy Lopez, she's, she's the person that came up with a good technique. We talked a little bit about Ali and Jim Brown and whatnot, um, and the way the culture of celebrity can subsume today's athletes, separate them. But did you, did you feel any sense of, of hope when you saw, say, the NBA players seeming like they were standing with the Black Lives Matter movement at the end of last year and using their cultural platform to try it to get It all comes from the leadership, out? you know. And uh, to me, I think one of the most stand-up dudes ever in the last four years, five years, LeBron James. Because mm-hmm. I think that LeBron James being centered and, you know, coming up in Ohio – also being, I guess, you know, just like most athletes are, I mean, always being the go-to look-at person since 7th or 8th grade and him to even a higher level. 
I think his mind stirs different and knows that, you know, all right, I'm the alpha top dog, so I got to really seriously man up. And um, LeBron James also is like, yo, I mean, he had to realize something clicked in his head. Ain't nobody going to do nothing with it. I kind of can do what I want. So if I could kind of do what I want, then I, I'm going to make a statement that I feel that's right. He's not making a statement he feels is is wrong that's going to all of a sudden overthrow <laughs> the government. He's just like saying what is right is right, and, and I'm the guy that everybody looks at as the face of the league. i got to be a different type of Jerry West logo. Yeah, and, he, and he knows that when he speaks out, it immediately provides cover for other players because you're not going to release a, a middling player if he can say, wait a minute, you didn't do that to LeBron James. Exactly. And and, 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 you, and you know that structures, corporations, organizations, governments, they got to be right by the people. And you got to sometimes say, you know, this is the right move to say something because this is what you represent. Yes, there's not going to be people in the hood, in the luxury boxes, kind of filling out the arena. Yes, it looks like in the dissolving middle class, you know, you're going to have you know, 95%, you know, white fans sitting in the seats supporting the player's salary. But, yes, you know, these athletes also come from these communities that need to have a voice. And and they kind of, you know, they financially they can't be quantified to say, well, this is these are the people that back the league. It's not going to be, you know, sometimes soul and sentiment and raising, you know, backs the, the, the backbone of a structure. You know, it's not always done in spreadsheets. So, yeah, there might not be Akron people all lined up in, in, in the luxury suite boxes and, and um, Quicken Loans Arena, but you get the feeling that Ohio is there, even if the person got laid off of another job that they got in 2015. You know, there's a head nod from that person that, that that's some kind of equity. You know what I'm saying? No, absolutely. I remember um, LeBron's rookie year, he was asked about his aspirations, and one of them he said to be a global icon like Muhammad Ali. And I remember hearing that and wondering, does he just mean popularity or being on a shirt, or does he is he sending out a signal as to his own aspirations of being a transformative figure? Well, you know, you know, you got to body armor, body armor, and man up, a woman up when you when you say something like that yeah. because it's. Uh, then you start to really understand that it's that the United States of America is a small place, that's, a smaller place than you originally thought. That's true. And that people also who drew inspiration from Ali, like yourself, will then pay that extra level of attention to mm-hmm. say, okay, well, you, you said it, not me. <laughs> so, so what's it going to be? Exactly. I mean, the world has been here. The world's going to be here. Human beings, well, it, it's debatable how long and how well. But, you know, we're, we're, we're unseen and we're seen and then we're unseen again. So during that part where you're seen and heard, being that you're breathing, whatever, it's about what you kind of leave for the betterment of who after. Chucky, I, I really do appreciate it. I can't think of anybody else I would have wanted as the, the first guest on the Edge of Sports podcast. Hey, Dave, we've been on either side flipping the mic. I'm interviewing you, or you interviewing me. It's more than a pleasure. Wow.
Chuck. Thank you so much. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Chuck D or go to rapstation.com. All right, now that we're going to do another segment uh, that we're, we're toying with on the show where I'm going to read a column that I wrote in The Nation, and this one is called, Why Does Anybody Play Football Anymore? The whole jumping-off point for this column was what happened on Sunday when NBA player LeBron James was asked why he does not allow his young sons to play football. NBA as he player, did. global superstar, singular global icon of sports, yes. <laughs> yes, NBA player, galactic icon. All right, so the whole starting point of this column— <laughs> was when galactic all-world NBA superstar and Amy Schumer co-billing headliner LeBron James was asked why he does not allow his young sons to play football as he did when growing up. And LeBron said, I need a way out of poverty. My kids don't. Now, this exchange had like a real kind of media uh, discussion, became a media discussion point for the next several days. And there's a reason for that. It's because he just happened to say it on the same day when the NFL had one of its just absolutely most brutal weekends that it's had in years. I mean, it was a weekend defined more by mangled bodies than anything that could be called a game. I mean, you had running backs Reggie Bush and Le'Veon Bell gone for the season. You had Steve Smith Sr., the receiver for the Ravens, tore his Achilles that might have ended his career because he said he was going to retire after this season. And it really made you wonder when you were watching all of this, if this is what's happening to their ligaments, if this is what's happening to their tendons, what's happening to their brains? Mm -hmm. And talking to somebody who does concussion research, as you do, uh, Chris, you know that what's happening to their brains, it's like it's unseen, but it's as or more deadly than what happens to their knees and hips. Am I right? It's the long-term effects that they're going to actually suffer from. They may not have too many in terms of the short term. You may get the dizziness. You may get some blackouts. But it's the long-term effects that you know, researchers are concerned about. And as fans, we don't see their bell rung. You know, we don't see the dizziness. We don't see the pain when they're at home. We don't see that moment where they can't remember their kids' names. We don't see that part. But we did get a physical expression of what possibly that could look like in the game between the Seattle Seahawks and the Dallas Cowboys. Because that's when Seahawks receiver Ricardo Lockett on what was a clean hit was concussed, and he had torn ligaments in his neck and discs that were ruptured in his back. And he'll be out for the rest of the season at least. And believe it or not, everything I just said was seen as relief to his family and to the Seahawks teammates and to everybody in that game. Because when he was lying on that turf, people were just hoping he would move. He was motionless. Players were praying. I mean, it it spoke to this existential fear that I think exists in the pit of the stomach of every NFL player and definitely every NFL bean counter looking at the bottom line. And that's the idea that this incredibly lucrative sport, the most popular sport in this country, could be the scene of a live death. Something that it's worth saying has only happened once in the NFL in history back in 1971, a receiver named Chuck Hughes for the Detroit Lions. So it hasn't happened in over 40 years. 
But that doesn't mean it's morbid or unrealistic to contemplate because anybody who has paid attention to the high school game this fall knows that seven high school players have died Mm -hmm. in the last six weeks. Seven players have died. The latest Andre Smith from Bogan High School in Chicago. And this is what it reads um, at, at the autopsy office at Cook County. It says he was he lost his life due to, quote, blunt force head injuries due to a football accident. Think about that. Blunt force head injuries due to a football accident. Now, the typical cause of death is not head injury on a football field. What it usually is is sudden cardiac arrest, which in theory, you can find the players at risk for that beforehand if you give them an EKG, an electrocardiogram test. And so some people are saying, well, we'll just have to get those for high school football and then you have to think for a second, though. It's like my kids go to public school. My wife's a DCPS high school teacher. Our public schools are breaking at the seams. There's overcrowding. There are kids who show up without pencils. There's not enough books. And we're going to have EKG machines at public high schools around the country. It is utterly unrealistic. So given all we have learned mm-hmm. about the dangers of what's taking place, I think it raises a big question, which is why anybody plays this game. Why are we sending young kids? Basically, what we're doing is sending them out into thunderstorms holding nothing but a kite with a key attached to it. We're basically daring lightning to strike when we send our kids out to play youth football. So why does anybody play? And I think on one level, it goes back to that LeBron quote about why he won't let his sons take the field. Certainly, poverty is a motivator. But let's be honest, there are also thousands of kids who play high school football who know they don't have a shot at the pros, who know they don't have a shot at college, but they still play because they want the other things that the sport brings. Community, status, popularity, a sense of conclusion, a sense of inclusion, and that kind of localized hero worship that only football brings, or at least brings more than any other sport that's out there. And I got to say, there's a, it, it's irrational, but also rational. Because think about teenage boys. Think about the idea that amidst all the awkwardness that goes with being a teenager, when you feel like this alien is inside your body, <laughs> and you don't even know like, how your limbs are working, what and what's that pimple yourself? doing there, and right. what are you doing with yourself? All of these questions. Here's this avenue to actually feel special in what sometimes for too many kids feels like the most interminable time in their lives. And it brings to mind to me a very famous quote, and it's it's not even sure if this quote is uh, actually happened. It's apocryphal, I think, is that the word? Apocryphal, Dave. Yes, it is apocryphal. And it was a conversation between Buster Mathis Jr. and Buster Mathis Sr. They were both uh, heavyweight boxers. And Buster Mathis Jr. went to his dad and he said, Dad, should I play football? Or should I box? And his dad said, son, please play football because nobody plays boxing. Mm -hmm. And it's the sort of thing that is used often, this quote, because it speaks to the idea that boxing is so much more dangerous than other sports and it shouldn't even be considered a sport. Nobody plays boxing, play football. But we got to update that for 2015 and ask this question, does anybody really play football? Like are high school kids playing football when they're risking their lives for status or a way out of poverty? Do NCAA players play football when they're generating billions of dollars for a system that treats them like indentured labor? Uh, Do NFL players, play football when every play could be their last. The only people who seem to be playing to me 
are the egomaniacal coaches at the high school level, the parents who are pushing their kids, uh, the NCAA millionaires making money off these kids, and the NFL bean counters. They seem to be the only people who are playing. And you know who they remind me of? They remind me of the chicken hawks during the Bush era, like the people who are so happy to send other people to war and tough talk tough when they wouldn't do the same themselves. They were so happy to send other kids to war and talk tough when they wouldn't do the same themselves. It's a sport ruled by wannabe macho chicken hawks putting other people's kids' lives at risk. And if you want proof of that, seriously, look at the difference between big-time basketball coaches and big-time football coaches. Mm -hmm. Many big-time basketball coaches, their sons play too. Doc Rivers, Austin Rivers, to Mm -hmm. use one example. George Carl and Kobe Carl. You know, the kids play. Tubby Smith, Saul Smith. Dunleavy. Dunleavy, a great example. Mike and Mike Jr., Dunleavy. Now look at big-time football coaches. Where's Urban Meyer's kid on that field? Where's Jimbo Fisher's kid on that field? They don't want, where's, and then you take it to the point that we started with. Where's LeBron's kid on that field? If you don't have to play, you're not going to play. But too many kids feel like they do have to play. And at some point we have to say, I don't care what the reasons are. We have to examine harshly why it is people feel the need to put themselves at this much risk. Uh, my Just Stand Up Award goes to someone I've written a great deal about, Tabo Cephalosha, uh, standing up to the New York Police Department, uh, refusing to take a deal to make the case go away when New York police officers broke his leg outside a club last April. Uh, good for you, Tabo Cephalosha. Way to stand up. In the weeks ahead, we're going to talk to Michelle Roberts from the National Basketball Players Association, and we're going to hear why the union chose to be very public about sticking with Tabo Cephalosha during this case. And it was an ugly case. It was a clear case of racial profiling. The jury thought so. The jury met on this case for an, less than an hour. I mean, they didn't even wait till you get the free lunch that, that you get fast. on jury duty. They met. They were like, this is some bull****. And then they moved on and uh, completely exonerated Tabo Cephalosha. And now he's like, he's going to sue the New York Police right. Department. And I've heard some people like got back to me and said, no, taxes is going to, you know, our taxes. He's taking our tax money. Look. Police departments are like businesses, and they have a certain money set aside for these kinds of cases. Yeah. And when you eat into that money, I have heard from people who work in city councils that it's one of the only things that forces institutional change is when they feel like that that it's costing the city money to settle these cases. Look at L.A., the Mm. riots from 92. Imagine that outbreak and everything else and then just other incidents that have happened since then so you figure there's people always suing the city so it's almost like expect it and have money ready to pay very well put cdp very well put indeed hey chris dotson pearson thanks so much for joining us on our inaugural show thank you dave it was awesome you can follow chris at prof cdp you can find us on itunes stitcher soundcloud or your podcast app of choice Follow me on Twitter at Edge of Sports. You can tweet me and my producer, Dan, at Dan Bloom Sports and tell us what you think of the show. And this is not a one-way street. We love to hear from our listeners. Tweet us or email edgeofsports at slate.com with your feedback. I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>